Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. A woman in town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at Pharisee's house. So she came in there with an alabaster. alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped him with her hair, kissed and poured perfume on him. One Pharisee who had, in, who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if the man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That Jesus sent her. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owned money for certain money lender. One owned him 500 denarii. denarii, and other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave debts of both. Now which of them will he love more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had bigger debt forgiven. You, you have judged me correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. I did not give me any you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You do not give me a kiss, but but this woman from time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You do not put oil on my head, but she has put perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who f even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, no, lower your expectations. <clears throat> Nothing beats that. Um, well, good morning, Amago. As you just heard, my name is Mandy. Um, pronouns are she, her. Uh, so there is a lot of cultural context that gets missed in the passage that we just heard. Um, However, this particular morning, you're not gonna hear me waxing eloquent about the Greek and all of that, because that's not the purpose, so sorry. But if you'd like to hear more about those details, let me know. Um, but there's a, a more important message, I think, especially in terms of what we're looking at with Luke. And so um, that's the direction we're gonna go this morning. Before I start the prepared portion, though, I do wanna just ask, 
Um, and for those of you who maybe haven't been to Imago before, this is pretty customary when we um, have somebody sharing. A lot of times at some point we'll open it up because uh, frankly, we learn as much from each other as you will from anybody standing up here. So I would just like to know, based on what we did just hear, the passage that we just read, there's a lot to unpack, but what are your initial thoughts, um, instincts, knee-jerk reactions, questions about the passage that Kara just read? Maybe how it's been preached a certain way. Yeah. Hmm. You could relate to the woman that Jesus said you have many sins. Me too. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. So if I recap correctly, um, the, the section where Jesus says those who have been forgiven much love much, those who have been forgiven little love little, but sometimes the more we've been forgiven, the more we need to like ignore the thing we were forgiven of as like a coping mechanism almost. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, I'm not even five minutes in, and I'm going to break the promise I just made. So um, Dan, uh, our resident historian, is pointing out something that does require a little bit of context. So when it talks about the woman pouring out the oil on Jesus' feet from the alabaster jar, what we miss is that women didn't really hold, like, value. Like, they didn't have wealth. They didn't have um, possessions that were worth anything. So what we know is that most likely, based on descriptions and things like that, the oil that she poured on Jesus' feet would have been worth a whole lot of money. Um, I don't have like today dollars in mind, but this would have been like new car kind of money. It was most likely the only thing of value that she had. And she chooses to pour it on the feet of an itinerant preacher in a house where she's not welcome. So for most of us, we would look at that, and in some passages, we see the disciples even say, that was, it's such a waste. We could sell that money or sell that perfume, give the money to the poor. Isn't that like your whole deal? Like, why are you so okay with this? And what Jesus is recognizing is that she gave to him the only thing she had of value, she thought. And in that, he speaks to her value that she didn't know she had. And so as Dan is saying, sometimes there's a tension for us, like, what is the point of building giant churches and putting all this money into, you know, cathedrals and things to worship God when we could be more humble and use that money for the poor? And I think there's a lot to unpack in those ideas and conversations. I mean, we've been talking about those tensions for 2,000 years, but this is a passage that does cause us to maybe pause a little bit in our judgment and say, like, at what point 
does wastefulness become worship, whether that's individually or collectively, if I'm catching your meaning well. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Cindy. Yeah, and it was very deeply entrenched in the Jewish understanding all through the Old Testament. Um, and I'll summarize what Cindy said in a second. Um, but all through the Old Testament, we see this like equating of success with like you're good with God. And if bad things are happening, uh, you did something wrong. It's like the entire book of Job, the entire book of Psalms. We see this, this worldview because for them, the physical and the spiritual were not separate. So what was happening in the physical world was a manifestation of what was happening in the spiritual world. Now we know it's much more complex than that. That's not really a healthy worldview, especially when you then start taking into account like mental health and, and you know all the different factors that can go into somebody's circumstances. But as Cindy's pointing out, at this time, to show that you understood that Jesus had value, it almost required a, a material offering of some sort that would equate to that significance, which is part of what compelled this woman to do what she did. Anybody else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Libby's pointing out the verse where Jesus says to the man who's hosting him, Simon, do you see her? And it's not like physically, because everybody is hyper aware that this woman is in the room doing what she's doing. But then in context like education or really a lot of context in our world today, there's a difference between I acknowledge the existence of this person and I see this person and their value and, and want to make a space for them to belong. Yeah, I think it's part of the human uh, human experience that we judge based on externals, and and we don't always recognize the the value of the human behind the externals, and just pointing out that it's it's despite how frequent it is, it can still always be jarring um, when we see it laid out. Yeah, Kelly. So 
son of a gun. Okay, so. <laughs> so the Jewish understanding at the time, and this is why John the Baptist was so controversial. The understanding at the time was that the Jewish people were clean. And all that meant that wasn't, it doesn't mean necessarily what we, we think it means, but, but really it was just this idea of what is human and what is divine. If you're clean, you can approach the divine. Doesn't make you equal, but you can. But if you're unclean, you need to go deal with whatever's making you unclean before you can approach the divine. So for the Jewish people, because they were the people of God, they were clean. There, there was, I mean, go to the temple, make your sacrifices, that's all that's required of you. A Roman or a Gentile, they're all the unclean. And so baptism was not common, but it was a practice if somebody wanted to go through all of the things associated with becoming a Jew, including circumcision. Baptism was a symbol of, okay, you were unclean, but we're bringing you into the community. We're going to say that you belong through this practice. John the Baptist was calling Jewish people to be baptized. That is offensive. That is sacrilegious. But people were coming to him in droves, which means the people just felt a reality that they knew was there. But the religious folks who kept showing up, it was a threat to them. And their whole worldview, their whole system of power, everything they'd established, this is one of the things that lands Jesus on the cross in a few weeks. Um, and so all of that being said, the idea that Simon didn't have much to forgive, that doesn't mean that Jesus was saying you've sinned less than this woman. But one thing that's amazing about Jesus that I wish I could get better and better at throughout my life, he spoke to the man where he was. So he didn't correct him on that. He didn't tell him, hey, man, you have as much to be forgiven for as she does. He met him where he was and says, okay, you don't have much to forgive and she has a lot. How much do you love me? How much love did you show me when I walked in here? If I was a man of honor, you would have washed my feet. You would have done these things to, to represent the fact that you understood that I'm a man of honor. You didn't do any of those things, and I didn't condemn you for it. You're condemning her for showing the love that she has because she knows how much she's been forgiven. There's a distinction there that he was willing, and, and I believe this is true of the entire Bible, God will always condescend to our understanding of God so that he can draw us into the next level of understanding. We don't have to get to the sermon. Keep going. <laughs> That's great. Anybody else? Okay. So I'm going to be speaking. Um, the general topic for today is the idea of the women that Jesus interacted with in Scripture. So it's going to be a little bit heavy on that identification, but please know I'll bring anybody who doesn't identify that way back in at the end, so just stay with me. A lynch mob of, un of fundamentalist church leaders crash into the bedroom, tearing her off of him. Hands like vice grips dig into her bare, sweaty flesh as they drag her through the streets, past the gawking stares of neighbors, friends, enemies. Dirt clings to her and knees begin to bleed as she's flung at the feet of a poor itinerant preacher. They just wanna make an object lesson out of her set a trap for him using her as bait until she hears their stones dropping with thuds in the sand. In her world, women were owned, possessed. She had no rights, no education, no way to make a living. 
A wall in the temple kept her from worshiping God with the men. Yet he allowed her to sit at his feet, to listen, and to ask questions, just like the men who followed him. He protected her right to be a disciple, a right he had no business giving her. The opportunity was worth the world to her, certainly more than the price of the perfume she used to anoint his feet. She was the gossip of the town, the loose woman hopping from bed to bed. She'd been damaged goods when the first man left her for burning his toast. The rest had taken pity, but this fifth man disposed of even the charade of a wedding. She was a half-breed, unwelcomed by the pure religious folks and rejected by her own. So why was this traveling Jew breaking every rule by talking to her? Why was he tolerating her theological questions, dignifying them with answers? Everything screamed that it was a ruse, but she couldn't help but trust him. As Brian mentioned last week, one of the remarkable aspects of Luke's gospel is the number of individual encounters we see between Jesus and other folks that are recorded there. This becomes even more acute when you look at the number of and detail in the encounters that he shared with women. In his time, women were in every way considered less than men. A divorced woman had very few prospects, no ability to earn a living, and was at the mercy of family and society to care for her and any children she might have. Yet, there was a rabbi around Jesus' time who taught that a woman could be divorced for burning the toast or not cooking a meal to her husband's liking. Women were often forbidden from learning the Torah, couldn't enter the temple as far as the men, and were always to blame if a couple was barren. Yet we see through Luke, time and time again, Jesus talking with women, holding them up, calling them out as positive examples, and allowing them to break social norms in his presence. Now before I share this next part, please understand that I'm gonna be speaking of my past understandings of gender and my gender identity. The words that I use are gonna be true for what I believed at the time. I have never felt that I was actually in the wrong body or truly identified as anything other than female, despite the struggles I'm gonna talk about. I in no way wish to misrepresent my thought processes or to minimize or equate to the struggles that my trans and gender fluid family go through. So please understand that before I, I share the rest. That being said, I've never understood the game of femininity. In high school, I was enchanted by the girls that still smelled like perfume by the last class of the day. Their glossy hair, lilting voices, and trendy clothes made me feel like being a girl was a competition that I could never possibly hope to win. So I didn't try. I hid everything that I thought made femininity a joke in me, behind flannel shirts, baggy jeans, ball caps, and hacky sacks. I am a kid of the 90s. Um, most of my friends were guys because they made more sense to me. They didn't have all of the drama and double meaning I got from girls. And I wished at the time that there was a way to be non-gendered because I had no idea what being feminine looked like for a poor, round, nerdy, clumsy girl. I came into the church when I was 15 and it began to teach me some of what being a female meant. 
I was created to be a helper to the men in my life. First a father, and then hopefully in the future a husband. While this was disheartening for somebody who had four absentee dads, um, I took the message to heart. And my strengths were validated, to be sure. Um, I could teach other teenagers. I could help lead the women's ministry. I could pray with other people. And I could study on my own. Ultimately, though, women were meant to run a happy and efficient household to educate their children and make a home worthy coming home to for their husbands. Women shouldn't teach men, certainly couldn't preach, or be leaders in the church. My body was a temptation to all those poor, lusty boys, so I needed to make sure I was always very modest. But men are visual, and they can't form a connection with a woman unless they're lusting after her a little bit, so I also needed to be attractive all of the time. And I should pursue the passions in my heart, but not hold on to them too tightly, because if my future husband had a different calling, I needed to be able to submit mine to his. After all, a godly woman has a quiet and gentle spirit um, and seeks to be a helper. Um, this, was, this was hard for me, and I, I did the work to internalize all of it. After all, um, nope, uh, all this was very difficult for me as an independent, intelligent girl who didn't like kids very much and didn't know if she wanted to get married. Um, if I had been born a guy, my personality, gifts, and strengths at that time would have made me a prime candidate for a seminary. But because I was a girl, I was coached to go to the local community college and work on my personal devotional life because I wasn't strong enough yet to leave my pastor's uh, spiritual covering. When I discovered the hippies, I found a femininity that finally made sense for me. The shiny girls in the hallways at high school had defined what a woman was, but in the dusty fields of Cornerstone, I found women who were gritty and intelligent and strong and passionate, and they were leaders, and they seemed like they actually got Jesus. They wore flowy skirts and tank tops that showed their bras. They lived in their bodies with no shame, no fear, no fear feeling that they had to cover themselves. They had dreadlocks and tattoos and bare skin. They were beautiful, and they were shoulder to shoulder with the men, not a step behind, not hidden in the kitchen. They were serving alongside, and their beauty was beaming. At that time, I had come to really believe in the core of my being that the fact that I was female made me secondary. Furthermore, I had no full identity to claim until I found a husband because I would be largely defined by him. The only real relationship with a guy I ever had ended because our female pastor, don't get me in the irony of that, told him that he was a very laid back person and I would never be able to submit to him as my spiritual leader. And that was a requirement for us to get married. I basically came to the determination and, and believed this way through most of my 20s and into my 30s that God had just somehow made a mistake when he formed me together because I was either supposed to be a dude or I was supposed to have a completely different personality. I was a misfit toy looking for an island. Thank God for Imago. My destiny was to spend my life suppressing who I was and chafing as I forced myself into the narrow mold of what being a woman was in the church. I was taught a lie. 
Jesus didn't see women as secondary, and he didn't look to their husbands to figure out their identities. Some of Jesus' closest friends and followers were women. He shared intimate moments with them. They supported him financially without emasculating him. When all of the men who followed him scattered in fear at his trial, we are told that the women remained at his side and at the foot of his cross. Jesus first revealed himself as the Messiah to a woman, and his first appearance in the resurrection was to a woman. Women were never an afterthought to Jesus. He saw them. He saw them as human, as friends, and as disciples. What made them feminine or womanly wasn't a certain personality, a certain marital status, or a certain look about them. Prostitutes, cousins, old maids, government wives, and courtesans were all the same to him. He didn't value them for their sexuality or for their quiet and gentle spirits or their killer skills in the kitchen. He valued them for their faith, for their devotion, for their love, and he valued men for the same things. I will never fit a cultural or big C church uh, definition of what it means to be a woman. But I do think I fit Jesus' picture of femininity. I am the woman caught committing adultery, playing the harlot with every willing distraction. I am the used up half-breed, just trying to collect enough water to make it through the day. I am the woman who can't conform to the culture's demands of her, but who nonetheless longs to sit at his feet and learn from him. He invites me to do so, pouring his love over me, reminding me that I'm made in the image of God, and this is what makes me beautiful. And maybe for you it's not gender norms. Maybe it's ethnicity. Maybe it's the color of your skin, a sexual past, an addiction, a mental illness, family dynamics, socioeconomics, politics. But I would ask you today and over the course of this next week to just take some time to really ask if there are parts of yourselves that you feel are wrong or off compared to somebody's expectations. Society, your family, the church, yourself. Have you internalized rejection based on any of these things? Because if so, you shouldn't. And I know that's not an easy road to untangle, but you shouldn't. And on the other side of that, and please don't hate me, Think for a moment, and I'll be quiet after I, I say this. I want you to think for a moment about what would happen internally in your chest, in your gut, in your head if this morning we had somebody who was here sitting in the front row, fully attentive, fully listening, wearing a MAGA hat. If some of our street family, after a long night of sex work, came in here and were sitting at Melinda's feet when she was preaching, what thoughts would go through your head? How would you respond internally? Could you worship and learn next to someone with values that seem to contradict your own? <laughs> As we pass into communion, um, we're going to go through a couple of prayers and recitations together. But I want to ask that when we come to these tables, that we, we remember that the one that we're doing this in remembrance of, 
Jesus was the great equalizer of humankind. He is the redeemer of every single one of us. I ask that you try this week to see each person you come across in your day, each person you see on the news, and the person in the mirror, that you will look for the flicker of love and the image of the one that you love, the one who so deeply loves you. So with that, we're going to go into um, our time of affirmation and then communion. So in that spirit, I'm going to ask that you will, uh, if you're comfortable, speak along with me. With all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of my soul, I rejoice in God my Savior. God has looked with favor on those of low status. The Mighty One has done great things for us. God shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next. God scatters those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations and welcomes sinners and outcasts. God pulls the powerful down from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty-handed. There is rejoicing in heaven when sinners repent, when those who are lost have been found, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. <laughs> 